0: Job. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan. Happy to see you here. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. Someone will hand one to you. I'm going to be in two different stories today for a sermon. One is out of Isaiah chapter six, that's in the Old Testament. Page numbers are in your notes. Second story is Luke chapter five, that's in the New Testament. Page numbers also in your notes. Let these ushers know what they can do to help, and hopefully you can follow along. And this can be real practical and helpful. If this is your first Sunday here, I hope you feel right at home. We love to uh, just welcome you with a gift. There's a little information table back here by the staircase. Lots of information about the church. There's a bag of coffee for you there. We'd love you to take one home if this is your first Sunday here. Just thanks for joining us today. It's a big day in the life of our community. We're having a baptism after church today. There's going to be lunch, and then the baptism will follow that. Um, so. We have moved everything inside and it's gonna be fine. And I'm glad that you're, uh, I'm glad you're here and I hope that you'll stick around and join us for that as we baptize four folks. Uh, We'll put a picture up. I believe that all of our seniors who are graduating were at the nine o'clock. But just so that you can share in this celebration, here are four of our seniors. Emma Stanfield is the fifth. Uh, This is Ben on the left. He's got, he got a great job. He just shared with us last night. Uh, Gonna work for a year after, after high school. The next is Sienna, my daughter. She's headed to Wheaton College in Illinois. to Study community art. And Madeline Henning is going to Point Loma to study theology. And Kyler Haskins is headed to a school in Tennessee called Martin Methodist and plans to study psychology. So uh, those, are our, those are some folks we're really proud of, and they've worked really hard. You know what? All four of those kids were baptized in this church. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so... They have just grown up here, and it's going to be a little weird for them to not be here anymore, but uh, we'll see them when they come back, so hopefully you recognize some faces and can congratulate these kids. All right, in February, Melissa Lester, our worship director, preached this series called Overflow, and in one of the sermons, she invited us to respond to this question. The question was this, what is the barrier between you and the spirit-filled life? What is the barrier between you and this awareness of the love and the presence of God in your life? What stands in the way of that? What is the practical hindrance to that? What is the barrier? She asked for everybody to fill out a card, and almost everybody did. So we had well over 100 responses to this really important question. It was great information. Some people wrote busyness is a barrier. Other people wrote distractions are a barrier. Some people wrote doubt. Some people wrote discouragement. Some people wrote, the lack of discipline in my life is a barrier. But one response, when I read it, it just evoked this spontaneous, involuntary, verbal reaction. I was sitting at my desk early in the morning, and I was reading through these cards, and I read this card. It literally made me go, oh. Because written across the card in big capital letters was this word, unworthy. And then a couple cards later, I read it again this time in small, beautiful handwriting, the word unworthiness. And then a few cards later, I read it again. Somebody wrote, I feel unworthy. And I need to tell you that I had a very emotional response to reading this over and over again following this sermon that Melissa gave. And I've been thinking about it a lot in the last few weeks. And here's why I think I responded the way I did. There are three reasons. One, I was surprised to read this. I I did not expect this. Uh, So there was an element of like, whoa, I didn't even see this coming to this degree. And and then the second reason I think I had an emotional response to it was just it just made me very sad. And, And that's probably pretty understandable. And then the third reason I had an emotional response was because I felt this anger inside when I read that word over and over again. These were all anonymous cards. I don't know who wrote these cards. But I felt this sense of anger or something very similar to anger. And I felt like I want to do something about this. That's what I felt like. I want to I speak to this. I want to address this. I know that it's complicated and I know these stories are real and, and layered. But I want to say something about this. And I want to say something someday soon. Well, today's that day I'm going to address this head on. I'm going to take my best shot at this. The sermon today is called Blessing Over Curse. Blessing Over Curse. Today's the fifth Sunday of the season of Easter. In the Christian church, Easter is not just a day when we celebrate the resurrection. It's a season, a 50-day season of celebrating the resurrection. Well, what are we celebrating exactly? We're, We're celebrating the fact that Christ has triumphed over sin in the grave. We're basking in the truth of the triumph of Christ. It is not a fast like Lent. It is a feast. What are we feasting on? The reality of resurrection. We're just feasting on it. We're soaking it up like sunshine in the spring. We're just walking out and standing in it. We're we're feasting on it. It's like we're going back for seconds, and then we're going to go back for thirds. We just want to keep eating from this truth of resurrection that conquers sin and death. So for this sermon series, I've been trying to look at several really practical ways that we can Allow resurrection to be a lens through which we see life and a map with which we try to navigate the next step in life. A lens through which we see life and a map with which we navigate it. Essentially, I'm trying to articulate a really practical theology of resurrection. So that isn't just something like, oh yeah, that's what the Christian church celebrates on Easter. But you're like, this is why it matters. This is practically the difference that it makes throughout the day. So here's three examples. This is a lot of content smashed into a small amount of space. In case you've missed previous weeks or are just interested in a quick review, here it is. A few weeks ago, the sermon was called Peace Over Adversity. We looked at a statement from Jesus in which he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So because of, essentially, Jesus is saying, you are surrounded by trouble, but you can have peace within Surrounded by trouble, peace within, because of the resurrection of Christ, the trouble without and the peace within are not mutually um, powerful realities. One is more powerful than the other because of the resurrection. If we recognize the truth, we can recognize that peace is more powerful than adversity. It's more powerful than adversity. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. We can know peace That is overpowering the adversity that, of course, we're going to experience because there's trouble in this world. A couple weeks ago, a second sermon, we talked about joy over acedia. In other words, joy over this numbing sadness. Kind of a new word for most of us, acedia. Joy over this crippling apathy that often sneaks in in the middle of the day or the middle of the marriage or the middle of life. This lack of passion this, hmm, I kind of don't care as much, this sadness. The takeaway was this. Because of the resurrection, we don't have to deal with acedia through either distracting ourselves by staying super busy or disengaging from it by taking a nap. These are two common responses to acedia. Stay really busy and don't think about it or just check out and take a nap. There's a third option that is, we can choose joy in the face of difficulty, okay? Because of the resurrection, this is possible. We can choose joy in the midst of the obstacles. This isn't glim or uh, like giddy happiness. This is a deep joy. This is, I am moving through the pain, through the struggle with joy. Well, what in the world is the source of your joy? The resurrection. The, the, the belief that Christ's resurrection Uh, enables him to overcome even this, even this deadness that I feel right in the middle of life, right? Monks dig their own graves one scoop a day and they sleep great at night because they believe in the resurrection, that Christ overcomes even this, even this adversity that is like, you will die, you know that, right? It's all futile in the end, right? And they're like, yeah, it's not though. And I'm going to face that directly because of the joy I have because of the resurrection. All right, last week we talked about a third ramification of this, health over sickness. And we sprinted through six questions about the primary visible evidence of the coming, the kingdom of God, which is the healing ministry of Jesus. When Jesus heals the sick, raises the dead, he is demonstrating it's the primary visible evidence that he has brought heaven to earth, future realities to the present. And the simple truth is that through this whole conversation that we're having about sickness and death is that this brokenness that shows up as a disease, as illness, as death, it is no longer the ultimate power in the universe. It is no longer the ultimate power. There is something that is more powerful than that. It is no longer the end of the story because Jesus can heal. Jesus can restore to wholeness. Jesus can bring life. Because of the resurrection, we can see disease as radically temporary, all right? Um, we can move forward, even in the face of disease, with faith in Christ and the ultimate triumph of the resurrection. All right, so that's where we've been. If you've already lost me, then come back, because now I'm going to talk about today. Today, here's what we're talking about. We're going we're to look at uh, really quickly at a question that I think is at the core of the Christian faith. The very core of the message of the Bible. It strikes at the very essence of the Christian message and understanding of reality. In other words, there may not be too many questions that strike at the core heartbeat of Christianity than this question. What's the question? Am I worthy? That's the question. Am I, it's a question of worthiness, and that's what I want to respond to today. Now, I think I know what that word means, but I'd like to hear what you think that word means, worthy. In other words, what is another way of asking the question, am I worthy? What do people mean When they ask that question, am I worthy? How else do they phrase it? Am I lovable? lovable? That's great, yes. Am I valuable? Right, do I have value? Right, am I valuable? Am I lovable? How else? Ooh, all at once. Am I good enough? Right, am I good enough, Mark? Yeah, like am I worth this kind of compassion? Am I gonna be kind of within the, go ahead, Dan. Yes, right, there's often questions of, Merit or earning it, yeah. Um, Go ahead, Alex. I see you. Am I special? That is a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Am I worthy? When people make it a statement and they say I'm unworthy, what are they? What are they saying? Hmm? I don't measure up. I heard that. I don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. I am not acceptable. Mm -hmm. I messed up. Yep. I'm disqualified. Doesn't apply to me? Hmm. Should God love me? That's what they're questioning. Right. Just two thoughts on this question today. Two thoughts on the question, am I worthy? In one sense, no. And in another sense, yes. Okay. So let's look at the, let's look at the no. Uh, there's a real sense in which you and I are not worthy. According to the Bible, nobody is worthy. And here's the reason because we've sinned against God. We've sinned against God. Paul's letter to the Corinthians or to the Christians in Rome addresses this question head on. If you'd like to dig into it today or later, I recommend Romans chapters 1 through 9. It's what he's talking about. In the third chapter of Romans, Paul quotes no fewer than six Psalms and the prophet Isaiah to emphasize how humanity has become a unworthy I'll read this quickly this is what he writes this is Paul saying it is written quoting the old testament no one is righteous not even one there is no one who understands there's not one who seeks god all have turned away they have together become worthless And then Paul summarizes this using his own words in chapter 323 when he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in one sense, to be worthy of God, uh, to be worthy of God's love and acceptance, it might mean that you deserve God's love. That might be what it means to be worthy, that you have earned God's Love, or that you've achieved a level of holiness that justifies your being in the presence of a holy God, and that's what it. If that's what it means to be worthy, then in that sense, no, we we are not. We're not worthy. We hear over and over again throughout the Bible when people become aware of the real presence of the Almighty God. At the same time, they also become aware of their own lack of holiness, their own unworthiness. Let me give you two examples of this. One in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6. One in the New Testament, Luke 5. So in Isaiah 6, the prophet writes this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw him high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, with two wings they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah says this, he's writing this, he says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah becomes aware of the real presence of the Almighty God, and at the same time, he becomes acutely aware of his own unworthiness. Do you see that? Here's an example from the New Testament. Luke chapter 5. Luke's telling the story of Jesus calling his first disciples to himself. One of Jesus' famous disciples is named Peter. His mama named him Simon, so you'll hear him referred to as Simon here. One day, this is chapter 5 of Luke, one day Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge, Jesus did, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked to be put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water, put the nets down for a catch. Simon answered, master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full the boats began to sink. Here, listen to this. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. What's going on there? Try to imagine this emotion. Peter's at the end of a long, totally unproductive night of work. And now, while he's trying to clean up his gear, this crowd has assembled in his workspace because some religious leader has decided this is a good place to teach people. He's probably annoyed by that. Now the teacher wants to use his boat as a pulpit, asks him to be put out on the water, so he's got to give this guy a ride out of the water so he can have a better audience before the crowd. And now suddenly the teacher's telling him how to do his job, where to fish. And for some reason, I don't know why, I'd love to know why, but Peter obeys. It doesn't make sense to me, but he obeys, and then there's this massive catch. Peter realizes at that moment he is in the presence of the divine. He is in the presence of a very holy man, and his response is to be overcome by the awareness of his own lack of holiness. That's how he responds. Is Peter doing something wrong in that moment? No, but in the presence of Jesus, Peter simply becomes aware of his own sinfulness, his own self-centeredness. And we see this kind of response in the Bible over and over and over again when people come into the real presence of the power of God. On the flip side of your notes for discussions for for home groups, I've listed several places in the Bible where people experience the presence of God and are overwhelmed with their own sense of unworthiness. We cover our faces, we close our eyes, we fall to our knees. He is holy. We are not. We have sinned against our Maker, the Creator of the universe. We are not worthy to be in his presence. We become dreadfully aware of our own shortcomings. We become self-conscious. I have a friend who's a dental hygienist. I don't typically think about my teeth, ever. But when I see her, I'm self-conscious about my teeth. Her teeth are perfect, and she cleans teeth. So when I talk to her, I think she's looking at my teeth right now. <laughs> right? My unperfect teeth, imperfect. Even my grammar is imperfect. Right, I've just become aware, become self-conscious of something that I never even think about. We typically don't think about our sin moving through the day. We often are just gliss- blissfully unaware of our sin. But boy, when we become aware of the power and the presence of God, suddenly the reality of our sin like reveals itself and we feel like we are not worthy. Do you know the Bible word for this? It's curse. It's the Bible word for this. This basic idea that we are born into a race that has rebelled against our creator. And so sin is like inbred in us. It is, it is um, we receive it. It is inherited. And on top of that, we've also sinned against God. Not only are we sinful in nature, but we've sinned against God actively. So are we worthy in one sense? That is, in light of our sin? No. We're not worthy. But there is another sense in which the answer to the question, am I worthy, is an emphatic yes. An emphatic yes. According to the Bible, you have been made worthy. You have been declared worthy by another. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the essence of the Christian message. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Anyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Paul says this in in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, in light of the resurrection, you are worthy. In light of the resurrection, you have been made worthy. You and I deserve the consequences of our own unworthiness. But Jesus took our place in that regard. Jesus paid our debt. Jesus died For the sin that we have committed, and not only us, but the whole world has committed. And in so doing, Jesus has declared with emphatic clarity, you are of great value in the eyes of God. Jesus is not sulking in the corner of heaven, regretting his decision to die on the cross for you. No, he is standing on the right hand of the Father, advocating for you because he believes you're worth it. He's chosen you, he loves you, even in your sin. By dying in your place, Jesus has declared your worth. He's declared it to the powers in hell. He's declared it to the whole world, and he continues to declare it for the glory of the Father. This is his glory, your worth, because of Christ. You are the inheritance. So according to Jesus Christ, you're worth it. Are you Are you worthy of God's love and acceptance? Because of Jesus, yes, you can receive the gift of God's love. Because of Jesus, yes, God does accept you as if you had never sinned. Because of Jesus, you can, as the writer of Hebrews said, Melissa led off with it this morning, you can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence because because you can know that you are welcome in the presence of a holy God. You're welcome. You are welcome in the presence of a holy God. You belong there. Oh, no, not me. Yes, you do because of Christ. Not because of you, but because of Christ. He's declared that you have a place at the table. It's, it's frankly, uh, it's not, the value decision is not up to you to decide anymore. That has been settled. Christ settled it. You're worth it. You belong. You've been made worthy. Let's look back at the prophet Isaiah for a minute. Isaiah sees God. What does Isaiah do? Woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's verse 5. Here's verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, I have no idea what that is, some he- heavenly thing, flew to me, Isaiah says, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, see, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. (laughs) Okay, so Isaiah is called to be a prophet of God. He's supposed to tell people about God, but then he sees God, and he's like, oh no, I am not worthy to tell people about God. His his hang-up is his own unworthiness, specifically the unworthiness of his ability to declare the truth. So what does God do? Sends this angel thing to cleanse his lips with the holiness of God. In the presence of God, he is made worthy. You see that? And you know what's really beautiful about this? Isaiah believes it. He believes it. The very next verse, verse 8, Isaiah writes, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, Send me. Here I am. Send me. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I was worthy of doing it. But this thing has just been, this thing has just declared my, my uh, innocence in the eyes of God because of God. And now I'm, I'm willing because I believe what I didn't believe before. I believe you have made me worthy. Let's look again at the story of Peter. Can you see the look of utter shock in Peter's eyes? Can you imagine it when these nets that are his professional tools begin to snap? Because they've never held a catch this big. Can you see the eyes in Peter's head bulge as he sees this massive amount? And then his head snaps back and he looks right in Jesus' eyes. And Jesus is looking right at him. And he sees, oh, this isn't even about the fish Can you feel that hot rush of true humility flood Peter's veins as he stumbles through the water and the flopping fish to the other end of the boat and kneels down and embraces the knees of Jesus and says, go away, I am a sinful man. And then look what happens next, verse 10. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. In other words, I'm taking care of that unworthiness issue for you. I, I, I'm making you something into something else. I'm choosing you. I know you're a sinful man. I love you anyway, and I'm still picking you. Luke writes, here's the next verse. Luke writes, so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. He walks away from the biggest catch of his life, right? Because he believes it. He believes it. Peter tells Jesus, I'm a sinful man. Jesus tells Peter, from now on, you'll be a fisher of men. And Peter believes what Jesus says. Now, Peter's going to doubt. He's going to fail. He's going to struggle with confusion. He's going to struggle with pride. He's got quite a journey ahead of him. But following Christ's resurrection in a couple of years, Peter is resolved. He's convinced and it's not because he is worthy in and of himself. He's, what is he convinced of? He's convinced of the fact that through the resurrection, uh, his worth has been declared by Christ. And he's believed that. Because of Christ, he believes he is worthy. The Apostle Paul writes a lot about this dynamic. He uses the phrase, in Christ. It is the truth that we celebrate in baptism. We're going to celebrate in a few minutes in baptism that we surrender our lives to Christ. I'm going to I'm going to lower some people back first into the water as if they're dying, as if they're being buried. And they're not going to scramble to get up on their own strength. I'm going to lift them back out as if they're being raised back to life in Christ with the power of another. Paul says it's like we're hidden with Christ. It's like when, Paul, when, when God sees us, he doesn't see us. He sees his son, Christ. We've been hidden with him. He says this in, in 2 Corinthians God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in Christ, we might be the righteousness of God. This is loaded. Who is the righteousness of God? The Messiah. Who is sin? Us. And Paul just flipped our roles. It's powerful. Another way to put this, Paul says, is that you've clothed, you've been clothed in Christ. It's like you're wearing his uniform now. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. You belong on the team. Okay? Christ decided that you did. You've been given a a jersey. You're part of the the group. You belong in the family. He goes on to say, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed. That means you're part of the family. You are heirs according to the promise. You're going to get the inheritance. It's not a question anymore you know what the Bible word for that is? It's blessing. Blessing. You have been declared worthy, and the word for that is blessing. Are you worthy? That's a really good question. In one sense, no. You're not. Neither am I. But in in an even more real sense, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Because of the resurrection, it is blessing over curse. Blessing over curse. In light of the resurrection, which is the ultimate reality, in light of the resurrection, which is more powerful than sin and death, it is more powerful than your sin. The resurrection is more powerful than your sin. It is more powerful than whatever that thing is that serves as a barrier that makes you think maybe you're disqualified or unworthy. Resurrection is more powerful than that. Right? You are worthy. Jesus died for you and rose to give you new life. God loves you. God chooses you. He sees great value in you. According to Jesus, you are so worth it. There's only one question left. Do you believe it? Will you believe it like Isaiah believes it, like Simon believes it? Not because you've had a great life or a great week, but because Christ has declared you worthy. Will you believe it? Let's pray together. We acknowledge, Lord, that we need a lot of help believing this truth. We're aware, keenly aware of our own sin. And many of us who have declared to be followers of Christ for a long time, we have started believing uh, untruths again. We've started looking at ourselves and our own worth in and of our, ourselves. So I pray for those of us who have followed you, walked with you for a long time, that we don't feel worthy. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would repent. We would turn back to you. It was never about us. Our acceptance before God was always only about you. We never deserved it in the first place. May we believe that we are worthy because you've made us worthy. May we walk in confidence and boldness, not in ourselves, but in in you and your love for us. I pray for freedom because you've embraced us. We're part of the family. And I pray for anyone here, Lord, who has never actually articulated that moment of decision, who has never chosen to believe what the Bible teaches is true, This journey of faith is that. It's a journey. It's a long journey, but there are points at which we make critical decisions, and one is to believe the gospel, that Christ has died for us and that we can receive that. So I pray, Lord, for anyone who has not embraced you with their heart before, turned away from their sin and decided, yes, I'm going to follow Christ with his strength. Oh, God, may... May we be given the grace to believe, to follow you. Thank you for these four individuals who have embraced your grace and are going to declare it and walk in obedience to that grace through baptism here in a few minutes. May their value in your eyes be cemented in a way that can never be undone. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel. May we live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Would you stand up for a minute?